You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Lisa Edelstein. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I grew up in suburbia outside of New York, and I always felt like I was on the outside and wanting to be on the inside. There, there's a certain uh, element of like running and running and always running and always trying to do more. And it's not necessarily because I think I'm the greatest or the bestest. It's because I just have to do it. Like I'm a storyteller and I want to tell stories. It's funny because when I did my show, Positive Me, it was not long after I had been written about in the New York Times Magazine in this piece called Lisa in Wonderland that Maureen Dowd wrote. And it was this big article of a day in the life of me as this club kid. And, you know, when she followed me around that day, I made sure that I was, you know, having rehearsals for shows that I was working on and doing all these things. But none of that was really what she focused on in the article. She was very kind to me in this article and she could have really ruined my life, but she really didn't. She was lovely to me in this article. And I really appreciated that. But I inherited about 50 stalkers because my phone number and my address were listed in a phone book. So suddenly I'm a 20 year old woman with no real experience in the world at large with celebrity other than the microcosm of celebrity I had in New York. And now I'm being followed by strange men. I'm being called day and night. Uh, People are dropping things off at my apartment. Like it was very frightening. And so I had to really take a step back from my dreams and say, yeah, I always knew I wanted to be an actress, but I had to ask myself if I wanted to be an actress because I loved acting or because I wanted to be a celebrity because being a celebrity sucked. (laughs) Like it didn't want to have that experience any more than I was having it in that moment. And the answer was yes. Ultimately, I realized, yes, this is truly what I wanted. But at that point in time, there was a moment where I actually got an application for the Cooper Union School for Art. (laughs) And, and then I didn't really understand what the assignments were and I didn't follow through with it, but, but it's funny. That was always sort of a, another thing that I wanted to do that I wasn't really acknowledging. So by the time I wrote my musical, I wrote my musical because we were in the middle of a horrible crisis. The AIDS crisis was very real to me and my friends and not real to the people that I knew from New Jersey. They just, they thought it was government hype. They didn't believe in it. And so I couldn't even fathom that. And I had taken a class with Elizabeth Suedos about, about writing political satire. And she was very encouraging in terms of what I was doing. And so maybe it was just gumption. I just thought, okay, then this is what I'm going to do. And because I had been a celebrity of sorts, I was able to get them to hear my pitch at Umama, which is an amazing theater in downtown New York. And then I was able to get a workshop production and then I earned my way into a full production. So yeah, there's a little bit of gumption there, but I don't think that gumption comes from like, I'm the greatest or the bestest or confidence in any way. I think it just comes from drive. Well, you know what? I've always made things, made objects, but always very privately. And I think being married to an artist, I started to realize, and he started to really encourage that expression not be just kept in a drawer. And during the lockdown, when there was nothing else to do, I had all this time to really explore and give myself permission to see that part of my life as something that should be valued and exercised. I look at it in a very narrative way because that's how my brain works. So I'm looking for images that tell a story that goes beyond needing to know who's in the image, but it becomes more universal experience of a recognition of an expression or a situation or even just the furniture just draws people into the story of the image. 
I was wondering, did you discover something private within yourself during the making of Little Bird, where you play a Holocaust survivor who raised an Indigenous Canadian girl? I was so excited to be offered that role. They sent me the scripts and I read them and I wept so much just reading those scripts because the story is so profoundly sad. And I was really very honored to be playing a Jewish Holocaust survivor caught up in a very difficult story. And I was also honored to be on set and at a good part of the time that I was there, we were on Indian reservations and sort of having a cultural sharing time and listening to their stories and really just being a witness to what they experienced. So a lot of that was very profound for me working on that project. And I guess being able to tell the story that my character owned was, of course, really personal to me, just being Jewish. And a lot of times being Jewish, we don't necessarily get to play Jewish. So it was really important to me that I honor that story the best that I could. It was a little challenging with the accent because there's no accent that makes sense <laughs> because she's Polish, Yiddish, grew up in French Canada, educated in English. It was just baffling. We were like, okay, we're just going to roll with this, make some choices. <laughs> I love when people trust me like that. It's very exciting. So in the 1960s, really until the 90s, the Canadian government, they were trying to resolve the problem that the residential schools caused. The residential schools were run by the Catholic Church, and they were based on an idea that you save the child and kill the Indian. That's the horrible saying, which is to remove these children from their culture, erase their culture so they become regular, normal people in the world. You know what I mean? Completely racist. So the residential school program, they would actually go in, steal children from families against their will, put them in group housing to re-educate them. Recently, they've found like mass graves of children because they would get ill and die or they were abused and they would die. And these were unreported deaths. And then the children would be sent back to their homes, no longer speaking the language, having changed their names. If they had a name, sometimes they were just given a number. And their whole culture completely demolished. And what ended up happening, in conjunction with that, they were living on reservations where they had limited access to work and food. And so there was a lot of like flour and sugar, a lot of diabetes, a lot of disease, a lot of, there were a lot of ways that these communities were being decimated. And it led to a lot of addiction problems, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem made the problem worse. The, the crime made the problems worse. And so to resolve this, it's still thinking in a racist way. The Canadian government did this thing called the 60 scoop, where now they stole the children, literally sometimes at birth, just said, you're not capable of parenting this child and would take the child. And sometimes when the kids were four, five, six, seven years old, they would come to the house and steal the children and give them to white people. They would create catalogs of children, like a Sears catalog, where the children had numbers and you could just pick the one you wanted and you got that one. There was no vetting of the parents. A lot of these, some of the boys, which were harder to adopt out, ended up as farmhands in the States, basically slave labor. I met a man who, when he was, I think five or six, was adopted out as slave labor to a family in Pittsburgh. He worked on their farm. He lived in the barn. He was not raised with the other children. He just lived in the barn, became an alcoholic and a drug addict. And when he was 18, his mother was allowed to find out where they had sent him. And she had been collecting all of the children that had been stolen from her and bringing them back to Canada. And when he went back to Canada, he got sober. He learned his language. He learned his 
culture. And the day that I met him, he's the same age as me. He was becoming chief of the tribe. And it was really a very, so moving, the whole experience. Anyway, so that's called the 60 Scoop. My character is a woman who, through Jewish Family Services, thought she was doing a good deed by adopting one of these children who she believed was abandoned or neglected or in a bad situation. That's what they were told. And they were also told by the social workers to change their names and to erase their culture because it was not good for them. So she changed her daughter's name to Esther. She raised her Jewish. She had no information on the family that her daughter had come from. And her daughter was five when she got her. So it's not like her daughter didn't have any memories of her early life, but she was taught to forget those things. And in this story, we meet this family when the daughter is now 25 and about to get married and is just haunted by vague memories of her early childhood and is unable to move forward with her life until she figures out where she comes from. And it's her journey where she tries to gather up all the lost children of this family and bring them back to this reservation. And in the end, she confronts her mother about this whole horrible thing. And her mother is horrified because it's not something that she ever understood she participated in. That's the first time the mother finds out that she is complicit in the crime. And she is a woman who lost her whole family in the Holocaust. She's the only survivor. Everyone died at Auschwitz. And so she is horrified to feel complicit in somebody else losing their family. I mean, challenge comes from struggle. So it was hard. House was hard because I didn't have a lot of time in each episode to establish myself. I wasn't in most of the cases. So I would have, you know, a scene to create a whole world out of. And so I really worked hard on making sure Cuddy had a major backstory with House. And I learned a lot from that experience. Little Bird was hard just because of the accent was very confusing to me. I really felt very insecure about it. And I really like, it was so important to me that I represent well in that show because it was important to me. The show itself was important to me. So that was a struggle. And I learned a lot from that too. And I would do a few things differently if I had another opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. There's all different kinds of struggles. You always want to make sure that when your character walks into a room, they've walked out of another room. Like that there was a place they came from that brought them here. And there's a reason why what's happening here will affect them in the way that it affects them. And now, of course, you have to make those reasons fit the story. So it is sometimes a more difficult task if the story is written really badly, which happens a lot, especially with guest star roles, because they are underdeveloped characters that are there to serve somebody else's storyline many times. But it's a really interesting exercise to try and pull off. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can. And I find it very interesting, you know, when television and film started to really merge. It used to be when I first started in this business, they were very separate entities. You know, no matter how successful you were in television, people would always ask you if you were going to try and do films. And then somebody who was known for doing films did television, it seemed like a step down somehow. And now those worlds are very much intermingled. But when it very first started happening and I started seeing people who were used to working on films, where they would have three months to shoot an hour and a half, very well-developed story, and then had to come in and do an episode of television, which moves very quickly. I saw that the struggle was real, even for people who you might think would know better, they actually didn't know any better. It was a very difficult transition period for a lot of people. 
I have always thrown myself into everything, and that includes things that are terrible because I want to have the whole experience, even if it's going to hurt, even if I know it's going to hurt. For better or for worse, that has been how I've lived my life. And so it's given me a lot of information and allowed me to play a lot of different roles and understand a lot of different points of views. Being a guest star is a struggle sometimes because you don't, you're there to resolve someone else's story. I remember I played a part on, with the name of the show it was after Ally McBeal. It was a spinoff of Boston Legal with James Spader. So I was James Spader's love interest. Anyway, my character was so shy that she could hardly speak. And it was his love interest. And so for like three episodes, I had to be this woman who could hardly speak. But because I was involved in a case, because that's why we knew each other, at the very end of the third episode, having created a character who was so shy she could hardly speak, I had to do a three-page monologue about the case. So I had to finish the story because that's what I'm there to do. I'm a guest star. I had to complete the story for James by doing this three-paragraph speech coming from a person who doesn't speak. And it's stuff like that where that's where your hidden challenges are because you have to do such a heavy lift of resolving this story in a way that makes no, you see it a lot on like law and order and those kinds of things where you get this great actor and at the very end they have to do this monologue of why I did it. It's so hard to do well. It's so hard. You know, I'm a kind of person who I don't do well in lectures, but I don't like sitting for a very long time. But if I can listen while I'm drawing or painting, then I will actually retain more of what I'm hearing because it's connected now to what I've actually made while I'm listening to it. When I look at my paintings, I remember what I was reading at each section of the painting. So that's the way my brain works. And I think a lot of people who are creative, that's the way their brain works, where like we need to develop one skill in order to develop another and using your imagination is key to all of it. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.